Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. Today on the Coffee House, we are again revisiting the height of the Romantic era, starting in the mid-1800s and going to the turn of the 20th century. However, we're going to be visiting a different part of the globe than we normally talk about with this time period. Yes, today we'll be talking about the American Romantic Movement and exploring the music of Arthur Foote. Arthur Foote was born in Salem, Massachusetts in 1853. In many of our past episodes, we would describe young composers as being hailed as prodigies and describe their triumphant world tours at young ages. But it seems the American way of bringing up composers was a little different. Foote started learning music when he was 12, but didn't start formal composition lessons until 1867 when he was 14 years old. For these lessons, he attended the brand new New England Conservatory. Prior to that, he was presumably just in a normal school, whereas other European composers we've talked about have entered their conservatory lives often prior to the age of 10. Going past his conservatory life, Foote entered Harvard College in 1870. There, he studied both law and music. His music mentor was John Knowles Payne, the eldest member of the so-called Second New England School of Music, or the Boston Six. This unofficial group consisted of Payne, Foote himself, G.W. Chadwick, Amy Beach, Edward McDowell, and Horatio Parker. These composers are grouped together much like Les Six, or the French Impressionists, and the Mighty Handful, the Russian Nationalists. Essentially, they all shared similar styles and musical ideals, and were musically educated in the same way, in this case, institutes of higher learning, and often with voyages to Germany to learn from the Romantic masters there. Of course, they were also related geographically. They were called the Second New England School to differentiate them from the obvious predecessors of the First New England School, which existed during the Revolutionary Era and consisted mostly of self-taught composers writing in the style of English madrigals and folk songs. Following his undergraduate career at Harvard, Foote made the decision to forgo the law profession and work exclusively in music. Notably, he returned to Harvard for a master's degree and became the first person to be awarded a Master's of Arts in Music in the United States. Foote's time in school had a great influence on his later writing. While in school, he had been the leader and director of the Harvard Glee Club. Through this experience, he gained knowledge and appreciation for working with voices and choirs. Many of his most well-known works are songs, both secular and sacred. He also tried his hands at cantatas, which brought about the farewell to Hiawatha, the wreck of the Hesperus, and the skeleton and armor, all based on texts by H.W. Longfellow. He was inspired to try writing these more large-scale vocal works after a trip to the famous Beirut Festival, which was the showcase of Wagner's impressive stage works, in Germany. 
Though Foote was largely inspired by the grand style of Wagner, he was a much more vocal champion of the style and works of Brahms. Foote also became an organist in the First Unitarian Church, a post he held for 30 years. And due to this position, he was able to compose hymns for his congregation to sing. He described his hymn style as trying to be accessible to the whole congregation. However, his apparently most difficult piece, Still Still With Thee, was the most challenging to perform. Foote started to become a household name in the 1880s. At this point, he was writing lovely chamber works and large-scale orchestral works, and several premiered by the Boston Symphony, one of the premier symphonies in the nation. Of course, as was popular among great composers, Foote also held a conservatory faculty position. He returned to his alma mater of the New England Conservatory in 1921 to serve as a piano instructor. And while in this post, he wrote numerous books about theory and piano pedagogy. Due to his solid contributions to the American musical canon, Foote was awarded honorary doctorates from Trinity College and Dartmouth College, and he was also inducted into the National Institute of Arts and Letters and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Foote died in Boston in 1937 at the age of 84. So let's now talk about Arthur Foote's Suite in E for String Orchestra. The suite was first composed in 1907, however its complete form that we will be looking at today didn't exist until 1908, and didn't have its official premiere until 1909. The work consists of three movements, the Preludium, the Pizzicato and Adagio, and the Fugue. The original 1907 version had a different second movement than the current published Pizzicato second movement. Now it's interesting that Foote would title this work a suite. As we've discussed on the Coffee House previously, a suite usually means a collection of tunes suitable for dancing. And just judging by the titles of each movement, none of them really suggest a danceable tune, especially the third fugue movement. However, as you'll hear, each movement is actually quite jaunty. Even the slower second pizzicato is written like a lilting three-beat tarantella. Thus, Foot seemed to be having some fun with the nomenclature when working on this composition. Starting with the first movement, right off the bat, you can tell it's flowing and pastoral. Even though Foot was largely inspired by the German Romantics, this intro does have a pastoral quality that would later be seen with the early 20th century English composers such as von Williams. However, we hear the Brahmsian influence in the way Foote treats the meter. Often in Brahms compositions, there will be a purposeful obscuring of where the downbeat is. So in the first iteration of the A theme, the melody begins on the downbeat. However, when the A theme comes back after a transition out of the B theme, the meter is obscured, and it sounds as though the melody is actually starting on a pickup note, thus shifting the B emphasis within the measure. But this is really just a trick of the ear. The melody does begin on the downbeat still. What makes it seem like a pickup note is actually the bass line getting to the tonic chord on the second beat of the measure rather than everyone playing tonic on the first beat, as heard at the beginning of the movement. 
Another way Foote messes with the meter in this movement is by writing the melody in augmentation, meaning he has essentially elongated the time by doubling all the note values. The original melody is made up of quarter notes followed by eighth notes. However, as we're rounding into the finale, Foote has written the melody with half notes and quarter notes instead. Finally, as the final chord is held, Foote asks the violins and cellos to pluck a single pizzicato note. So this movement was part of the work prior to the second pizzicato movement being added, it does add a cute bit of foreshadowing for the upcoming second movement, as though Foote had planned it all along. So now on to that pizzicato second movement. Pizzicato is a somewhat tricky technique to write for. Simply plucking the string of an instrument that is meant to be bowed just doesn't produce the same sound volume. However, players are still able to adjust the volume of the pluck based on the force with which they pull the string. So, the quiet nature doesn't preclude pizzicato passages from having dynamic depth. We can easily hear Foote's dynamic markings as the phrases reach high points with crescendos. And just like with a normal bowed passage, there is still a wide range of color to work with throughout the string section. Foote uses the slightly darker and warmer pluck of the viola here to carry the melody under the higher, sharper violins. And in this excerpt, we hear the classic pass the line from top to bottom of the orchestra with the subtle color changes and higher octaves as each section takes over the line seamlessly. This movement, of course, also has an adagio, as alluded to in its title. There is a drastic change as this part is bowed. Under the violin melody, which is a very long extended phrase, there are pulsing, syncopated chords in the second violin, viola, and cello. This syncopation, coupled with the slow tempo, really still obscures the beat. Overall, this section is the least danceable part of the entire work. It's much more atmospheric and pensive. Foote did some really lovely things with counterpoint in this section, however. Of course, the first violins have the melody. Now, compositionally speaking, there are a few ways to go about adding a countermelody under this. One option would be to give a countermelody to the second violin, and this of course would mean the ranges of the melody and countermelody could potentially interfere with each other. While there's nothing wrong with that, it can obscure the actual melody, and it could also sound somewhat flat. The second option, and what Foote chose to do, is to put the melody and countermelody in the outer voices, meaning the high violins and the low cello. Mm -hmm. 
It's much easier for the ear to pick up these very different sound frequencies and interpret how the melody and countermelody interact with each other. And now we are to the final movement, the fugue. In program notes written by Foote himself for the premiere of the work, he states, quote, The fugue is pretty thoroughly planned out. The first four notes of the theme are heard often by themselves, and if those notes are observed by the listener at their first entrances, the fugue will be very clear at first hearing. Meaning, Foote thinks his listeners will pick up on all the different entrances of the fugue theme easily. And those first four notes that he talks about and the main fugue theme itself sounds like this. And here are several examples of those entrances that you could possibly pick from as a listener to hear them come back in. Like here in the basses and cellos. Here in the violins. Or here in the cellos in several quick iterations. In his program note, Foote also describes, quote, a long pedal point just at the last return of the theme. This is very identifiable as the rest of the orchestra drops out for a brief moment while the cello announces the pedal, which basically means a bass note that is held continuously regardless of harmony changes. As the theme is restated, listen closely for that low-held note. And as is tradition with fugues in minor keys, foot ends with the major tonic chord by raising the third, or the Picardy third, as we described in our last episode. So we hope you've enjoyed our little footnotes this week as we took a look at the American side of the Romantic era music. It's not an era of classical music that gets explored very often, so we're happy to bring you some of that. And if you'd like to hear more, please send us an email at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've listened to, please drop us a review on iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Spotify if that's where you're listening. Share us with a friend as well. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The suite for String Orchestra in E was performed by the United States Air Force Band Strings, conducted by Colonel Larry H. Lang. You can find The Coffeehouse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com.